Today's video was recorded on February 15, 2022, and this is number six in our series through the book of Exodus. Today we take a look at the story of Moses at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, and Moses essentially says to God, look, when I go back to the Hebrew people, they're going to ask me your name, so what should I tell them? Now, this is a valid question, because in the ancient world, the name of a god meant more than we think about names today. Uh, the name encapsulated the god. The name helps you understand the function of the god. So what they're essentially saying is, what type of god are you? This is what the Israelites are going to want to know. And God responds in a perplexing manner. And most people know it as, I am what I am. But in the original Hebrew, it translates, I will be what I will be. So in this video, we explore the name that God gives and why it's so important to understand, both within the context of ancient Egypt, but also for our own daily walk with God. The answer gives us an amazing glimpse into the type of God that we follow. So we hope this lesson both challenges you and encourages you to gain a deeper understanding of the name of God and how it can impact us on a daily basis. So enjoy today's lesson on the name of God. So tonight, we're in Exodus 3. So if you want to open your Bible to Exodus 3, we're just going to read a couple verses, and they're, it's not too, it's not extensive Bible reading, but what we're going to talk about is still very mysterious as far as the, the scholars go. And you'll see why as we kind of wade through this, but it has to do with the name of God. So Moses is receiving his call from the burning bush. He says, and we'll talk about why this is so important, but he says, you know, hey, look, the Israelites, they're, they're going to ask who sent me. What's your name? And God's going to give him a very interesting answer. And the very interesting answer is going to take some exploring if we want to even understand or begin to understand what it means, because it's not exactly explicit. Let's put it that way. It's a very interesting answer. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at the name of God and how he responds to Moses. Now, the painting that I chose in the back, I actually had to uh, crop this a little bit. It's, it's kind of a long painting. There's a lot more of Moses' sheep behind him, but it's Moses at the burning bush. The, the, um, the artist is a Spanish painter, Pedro Orente, and he lived between 1580 and 1645. Most of the paintings of the burning bush are vertical, so they don't fit the screen very well. This is the one horizontal one that is easier to crop. So we're not going to talk so much about what's happening at the burning bush, but what's going on with the name. And let me just make sure I let you know there's no way we are going to resolve everything there is to be learned in Exodus 3 or from these verses. It continues to be a mystery, and the amount of ink that has been spilled by scholars exploring how we interpret this is vast. It's just a, it's a huge amount. So you have a couple different questions of 
First of all, how do we translate from the Hebrew to English? That's step one we have to talk about. Then you get this answer that's rather ambiguous. How do we interpret the meaning out of that? What, do we, what does it mean for us? And what's going on here? What, what kind of answer is God giving to Moses? And why would it fit some of the context uh, there in Egypt? So that's where we're going to end up going tonight. This is their sixth in a series throughout Exodus. And what we'll start with is a little bit of reading. Exodus 3.14. I'm going to actually start at verse 13. I'll read verse 14 and then verse 15 to give a little bit of context. Exodus 3, verse 14. So this is Moses at the burning bush, and God, you know, it's interesting, God gives him his calling, and he immediately questions it, right? Now, most of us think if God tells us to do something, that we would automatically jump and do it. But Abraham doesn't, and Moses doesn't. They push back on God, and God's like, okay, no problem, you know. We'll figure this out, but it's interesting. Moses starts questioning the call, or at least how he's going to go about doing this. So verse 13, Moses says to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? So that's going to be the main topic tonight, and there's going to be lots of reasons why they're asking that question. So what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? So what's Moses going to say? It's a little bit, um, you know, if you think about it, God's telling Moses. Moses has been gone. He's been out of Egypt for 40 years. He's going to say, hey, go walk, walk back into the people, your people, the Hebrew people. Tell them that you happened to be walking through the desert. You saw a bush that looked like it was on fire. And now you're supposed to come and get the Hebrew nation and we're going to, you know, bring you it sounds crazy. What would, what would the Israelites be thinking? They would say, what did you see? You know, are you sure you didn't eat the wrong plant or something? I mean, it was on fire, but it wasn't burning, and somebody spoke to you. And so you can imagine that there's going to be lots of questions for Moses, and God knows that. He's going to, you know, he gives them some tools to use. But I want you to notice something right here. The first one is, is the word for God. So Moses says, suppose I go to the Israelites, and he, uh, and say to them, the God of your fathers. So now he's connecting it. They're going to know about a God of their ancestors. So it's an ancestral God. But the word that's used there, that's spelled G-O-D in English, of course, is the generic Elohim. Not the name of God yet. We'll get to that. So this is just the generic God. There was a God that your ancestors had. But now we want to know this. What's his name? And this is going to be, we'll cover more on name in a minute. But name is much more than what do I refer to you. Name is your essence, your nature, your function, right? It could also be about your geography. Where are you, where do you belong as a God? Because they don't really understand yet. They don't understand the fullness of, of what God's about to do. So. What Moses wants to know and what he assumes the Israelites are going to ask is really, what kind of God are you? What's the function of this? And that's what name means. It's much deeper than just how do I refer to you. So, okay, that's verse 13. So he says, what's your name? How's the answer going to show up? Verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am. 
So it's a little bit of a strange answer. I am who I am, at least in this version. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. So we're going to deal with this tonight, this phrase right here, because what God tells Moses as a name is, re- is actually a description. We'll see it as not only a description, but a verb, even better than just a simple description, but it's a verb. So, I am who I am, and now notice something in your Bible, possibly, here on my screen, because this is the NIV, there's a footnote. So, does your Bible have it footnoted at all? Most, I think most Bibles nowadays have a footnote. So, whenever you see a footnote, you got to read it. And here, I am who I am, you look at the footnote, and this one says, or I will be what I will be. So we've got two different ways that this can be translated. And it turns out that the second one is the more accurate in the Hebrew. I will be what I will be. Almost all of your Bibles say, I am who I am, or I am what I am. And there's a reason for that. It's the way the Septuagint in Greek translated it. But I will be what I will be. It's future-oriented. In, in Hebrew, there is no uh, present tense verb. So you can't just say, I am, like I am right now. So it's, I will be. Okay. So that's the, that's the main thing. And the text then says, I will be has sent you to you, sent me to you. God's calling himself, I will be. So what does that mean? It's a strange answer. And so this is what we're going to really explore tonight. And then real quick, if you look at verse 15, because now we're going to get the formal name of God. So God said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. Now, what is this? The name you shall call me from generation to generation. So now what's God saying, this is my name? Well, it's right here, the Lord. Okay, Lord, if you notice in your, the way your Bible works, L-O-R-D, all caps, is the proper name of God. yud Hey vav Hey. Okay? So that's how we know Lord. Now, if you notice on the NIV or whatever, you can look in your Bible, I have a footnote for Lord. So you want to read the footnote. What does the footnote say? It says, the Hebrew word for Lord, that's L-O-R-D, all caps, is yud He vav He. so right there on the screen. And it sounds like, and is, and maybe, scholars believe that it is, related to the Hebrew word for I am, from the previous sentence. So, I am is a verb. Notice the two H's, the two H's. So, that is an, uh, it's like, eh, yeah, which means, I will be. So, these two words, believed by scholars to be connected, derived from the same Hebrew verb, which means to be. So, what's God's name? Well, it has to do with, he just is. He gives us a name, and the name is just I be. 
or I will be, because there is no I be, there's no uh, present tense. So even the, the name of God is connected to that phrase, I will be what I will be, and it's derived from a verb. So this is going to be really important as we look at how they're, what's happening as they're leaving Egypt as far as a future-oriented God. Okay, now, that's, my, that's a lot of drawing there on the screen, but I know I keep saying this and I don't want it to be depressing, but there's a def- it, we're deficient in English to pick up on what's going on because they sound alike. If we were listening to it in Hebrew, you would pick up on how many words are sounding exactly alike. And you'd be, your ears would be checking it off because they would notice the sounding. But in English, we, we miss that. So they're connected. That's the main point. And it has to do with the idea of being. So uh, this is still on number one on your handout. There are a number of translations that you find. And this is what scholars are debating. We don't, it's like we, we're not really sure, right? So you get uh, I am what I am, or I am who I am, are the most popular. Now, again, what happened, I am what I am, sounds more present tense. Uh, what happened was when they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek, called the Septuagint, it translated into present tense verbs. But the Hebrew itself is fut- is not present tense. So in Hebrew, I will be what I will be. And I think that, if you read the Hebrew, is the more accurate one. You could also say, and again, this is where it gets really confusing, there's the next one on your list, I will cause to be what I will cause to be. That's an option. Or, finally, and not finally, because there's more, I just didn't have enough space on this, I become what I become. There's something about God that we're going to see in a minute He's, he's, uh, it's something about the future, and we're not really going to be able to know exactly something about God, which is true, if we all think about it for a minute, and we will. But it's something about, he, he kind of gives a, a non-answer to this, it's a vague non-answer to the question about his name. Okay, so if I was going to rephrase this verse uh, 14, I would say, God said to Moses, I will be what I will be. And this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I will be. That's, the, that's what the Hebrew word means, has sent you. Now, what does that mean? Right? Uh, there's something about God in the future that we're, or, or at least at least as being, that we, are, we can't truly understand. We know when we interact with God, but there's a lot we can't figure out about God. So these two words, I will be and I will be, Match and then God says to Moses, "Say to the Israelites, the Lord Yudhevavhe," and that's connected to the same thing, something about "I will be," something in the future. So, okay, this is why it gets a little bit confusing, but hang with me. We'll put a bow on it at the end. Okay, number two. That was only number one. Number two on your sheet, the proper name of God. This is the Yudhevavhe that we all know. Uh, spelled L-O-R-D, all caps in your Bible. So what scholars note is it's derived from a verb to be. And what uh, Nahum Sarna, in his commentary, he says, and this is the one I have a, I have a footnote on there, 
He says, one way to translate the name of God is he causes to be. God is the ultimate in reality. He causes our creation to be sustained every moment of the day. What happens if God were to take his hand, so to metaphorically, off creation? The whole thing would fall apart, right? He's the sustainer, but he's also the creator. He's causing all of this to be every moment. So there's something about God being a creator or causing something to come into being. Okay, uh, number three, real quick. Names. Why do they want to know a name? Well, a name in the ancient world is very important because a name is more than just how you refer to somebody. A name is the essence. A name is under how you understand the, the nature of the God. What kind of God are you? I'm the God who causes things to come into being. It's also function. We'll see in a minute. All of the gods of Egypt have a function. And the function is limited by nature. Well, is God limited? No. So you have a function. That's what they want to know in your name. And that's what the, the, in, in Egypt, the gods have a function. And they often have a limited by geographical area. It's the god of this area. Well, is, is this god limited by geographical areas? No. And what's going to be so cool is when we start looking into the Pharaoh versus God battle, the 10 plagues, this is what comes out. As the plagues begin to build, you notice he's not a God or he is outside of time. Then Pharaoh notices he's not tied to geography and Pharaoh begins to realize, oh no, I'm up against, because Pharaoh doesn't know who God is either right? A representative of the slave shows up and says, hey, our God wants us to go out into the desert. Pharaoh's like, who are you? And who's, what God is this? I've never heard of him. So it's a normal question to ask. If you're not familiar with the God uh, or a generic God of your ancestors, then you want to know what type of God is this? What's your function, right? And again, we have to kind of, if you go back to the mind of the Israelites, they're aware of an ancestral God, but they're not aware like we are of God. We have 3,000 years of, we're looking back reading this. We all bring our knowledge to God to the story. Um, okay, finally, last thing, very important. In the ancient world, to know the name of a deity meant that you could have power over the deity. So if God gives you a proper name that's limiting and, you know, narrow in function, the assumption is that you now have power over that God. Well, do, does anyone have power over God? No. So he gives an answer. I am that I am. That's about all you're going to get out of me because you can't pin me down. You can't, you can't uh, limit me by giving me a name. So um, if you know the name of the deity, you have the power over that deity. At least that's the way that they, um, they thought about it. So, God gives Moses a non-answer. I am what I am. So, this is the next part, and this is kind of tough at first, until you realize the genius of giving a non-answer. So, God gives uh, Moses a non-answer. One example might be something like, if if somebody is going somewhere, and you say, where are you going? And they answer, 
I'm going where I'm going. What are they, what are they saying to you? I'm not going to tell you where I'm going, right? Hey, n- mind your business is what they're saying. If you're, you know, hey, where did you get that? I got it at the getting store. Basically means none of your business. And this is what God does. He gives them a non-answer. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. There's no human words that could possibly express the fullest nature of God. So God doesn't give Moses anything to do that. I'm the one who causes it to be. Well, what, what is that? Well, moment by moment, you're going to have to live, walk with me moment by moment, right? So when you name something, you specify it, you localize it, you reduce it. And this is so true in many areas of our lives that seem overwhelming. Once we have names, they get, it reduces it. So when he gives this name, I will be what I will be, is really a non-answer. And so um, some of the points on this, again, humanity can't express the fullness of God. It's like we call it, you know, putting God in a box, so to speak. When you reduce God to something, and this is a real problem because human beings are limited, and so we tend to want to place a limitation on God. And God's like, well, don't do that. So the name is really, it speaks volumes. You know, only God can define himself. How could the created, how could we as the created define the creator? It's, it's like one of the, it's the, it's the height of hubris to think that we can define everything about God. God's like, but you can't. You know, I'm, I'm beyond your limitations. I'm outside of time. I, I'm not tied down to all the things you're tied down to. So there's the tendency that hum, humanity will limit God through our own limitations. And so part of the way that God communicates this is the, is the response to Moses. You can't limit me. I'll be what I will be. And, you know, one way, if you, well, hold on, let me, let me go to the next point. So what happens is God gives an answer, and this is really cool. I'll show you why in a minute, because it's so pertinent to the ideas of the way, thing, the way people thought in Egypt. God gives an answer that says, I'm a God of an open-ended future. I will be what I will be. You can't predict what God's going to do tomorrow. So don't try. We can't predict, right? If you know God's there, but usually you only see God in the rearview mirror, right? So, so he's, he's a God of an open-ended future. He's not formulaic. So you can't predict. You can't, uh, can't say, I know exactly how God's going to show up tomorrow or next week or do whatever, because he probably won't. And you won't, you'll only see him after the fact. That's kind of how we, you can only look at God's back. The other part is having an open-ended future means, now this doesn't mean that God doesn't know how things are going to end at the end times. He's outside of time, so he can, look at, he can look at all of time. What it means is, as you interact with God, God's not predestined to act in a certain way tomorrow, which they thought their gods were. If you said the right incantation, the God had to act a certain way. Our God says, don't go there, because you'll you'll be wrong. So God's not formulaic. God doesn't respond to certain 
you know how I'm sure that you can imagine something that's happened over your lifetime in the church where someone says, just pray this prayer and all your problems will be solved, right? And then you realize, no, all my problems are still with me. You know, maybe they're even amplified because I took a step closer to God and now I see even more of the issues I have. So God's not a formula and we don't want to turn him into something that's a winning formula. All that said, so what's a name have to do with uh, a non-answer, meaning I'm not going to tell you all the whole thing because you're going to try to pin me down and you can't. And there's something about a future-oriented, open-ended future. So that's kind of the, those are the main points that we're going to bring together. So flip your page over because the, the context of this answer is going to be inside of Egypt, right? And so we have to remember that everybody, including Moses, Moses grew up in the palace. He's familiar with the Egyptian, or Egyptian pantheon of gods. The Israelites would at least be familiar with it. They don't have any formal cult for God. They don't have any worship sites. They don't have, um, God has barely been present in their lives. So they know of the, their ancestral God, but the whole world had many gods. This is what they're used to. So something like this, right? I mean, this is just one little slice of the number of Egyptian gods. Which one are you going to pray to to get your problem solved? And you better get the prayer right. You know, what if your neighbor doesn't pray to ISIS and, you know, and your crops don't get any rain because he didn't pray. So you get pressure for your neighbor. I mean, there's all kinds of anxieties that go on with this pantheon of gods, because who do you pray to? It, gets, it, would be, it would get crazy. So the, the Egyptian, and the, the, the same thing is going to, we're going to do the same thing when we look at um, Pharaoh. Because as I said, he's going to say to Moses, who the, who's, God, who's this God? I never heard of him. Because he doesn't, he knows the whole pantheon, but not this one. Never heard. Not real God. Until God starts showing up. And then it's like, uh-oh, this is different. So many of the gods, well, many of them, all of them have a function. They're, they're, uh, they're fixed. They're limited. They might be limited to certain functions. They're fixed in geography. Uh, you'll see God break that geography in, in some of the plagues. They have a very specific function, and sometimes their name is associated with the function. So that's why they want to know God's name. What, is you, what do you do? So they're all trying to figure this out. Now, how do we then, if I have the name of a God, remember I said, if you have a name of a God, you have power over the God. That's what they thought. So in, in Egypt, Magic was an everyday event. Black magic, witchcraft, sorcery. So magic and incantations was a daily occurrence in almost all of the ancient world. In fact, Paul is even wrestling with that at Ephesus. You know, Ephesus is known for their black magic. It doesn't go away. And magic is used, it's a way to harness the powers of the gods around you. So you have an incantation. You call out the power of the God that you want. And the magicians would always be working to have the perfect incantation that would guarantee that the God would do exactly what you wanted the God to do. Or, what, yeah, what you wanted the God to do. That the God would be predestined to, 
take that action. And of course, you know, the best magicians would get the best incantations, right? So why doesn't God give a name? Can God be called out in an incantation? No. How many times people pray for something thinking, I know exactly what I want here. Let me pray for the specific thing. And then it doesn't happen. Because you can't force God to do what you want him to do, right? He's not formulaic. Um, one of the first commandments, if you're reading through Exodus that shows up, it's Exodus 22, talks about what do you do if one of your people starts practicing witchcraft? And it's not good because God's like, you do not want that happening around you. It's going to distort reality. So, um, incantations. You call on the power of a god. And so you'd have this pantheon of gods. You've got to figure out which one to call on. Like in Ephesus, it was Artemis. If you're pregnant, you've got to go get the right incantation for Artemis so she'll protect you during pregnancy. But if you're not pregnant, then you go to another, you know, if you, if you want your crops to grow, you've got to go to Demeter. You know, it's the same thing in Egypt. There's a specific goal. You want power. The, the world is chaotic. Give me the power to get through this and give a long life. And the assumption is you're predestined, the God is predestined to act. So this is why I think, and scholars do as well, God doesn't want to give them a name because they're going to abuse it, right? Maybe that's why God says, don't take my name in vain, meaning don't try to use it for something that's not in the goal of goodness, because you're going to try to do what you do with the other gods and use it for your own power or something like that. So, okay, magic and incantations everywhere in Egypt. Everywhere in the ancient world, that as well. All right, so here's the main point. All that to say, what kind of God is this? And what's God up to by giving that open-ended, future-oriented name? I will be what I will be. And what it has to do with is our conceptualization of the cosmos. It has to do with an, it's an exodus of the mind. It's not just the physical body that gets moved out of slavery. It's the, the slavery of the mind that has to change. How do you envision the cosmos so that you can move forward in the world? There's a much bigger picture, I think, unwritten here in Exodus. And it's a shift that happens in history that scholars write about this shift and will point to the Bible to say that's how the shift started. Was God bringing people out of, out of this, this cycle that they're caught in and they can't get out of? So here's the, the picture that I have. I put the whole picture on your sheet, but I'll walk you through it. And it has to do with this idea of the, the ancient world saw themselves in this giant cycle called like the great cycle of the cosmos big turning cycle that just repeated itself over and over and over again. And there are still cultures that think this way. They're very fatalistic. Hey, you're suffering over there. Nothing I can do about it. I can't stop your suffering. God just, the gods have faded it for you. Not my, not my problem. So you get you get very fatalistic thinking. Nothing I can do about it. There's no personal agency. Like people don't take responsibility to move the place forward because maybe you would disrupt the system. So don't move it. 
your goal in the ancient world, when you're living in this system, all the gods are inside the system, the cosmos. So your goal is to gain power. That's it. You want power so you can live a good life, and you're going you're gonna to use your magic to get power from the, from the system around you, and that's it. Hey, so someone else suffers because you got power. Not my problem. So what you get is there's increase in suffering and injustice, and there's very little progress moving forward. So in fatalistic cultures, which Egypt was the epitome of this, very little moving forward. And this is simply the way you conceive of the world. It has nothing to do with your physical being, but it's your mental, your mind, and your spirit. So what God's going to do, and this is what my pictures on your sheet, is God's going to do an exodus out of this to say, no, 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 no. You're on a path. You're walking the path, and you've got a goal. The promised land, right? And we're going to walk this path together. And I tried to show the arc of a story there because now you're on a journey and you're going to be moving through a story and there's going to be turning points and climaxes and all of that. And it's going to crescendo down. And where are we going? Well, instead of one big cycle, we now, and this is the way we think about things, you have earth as one sphere and heaven as another sphere. So when we think of our cosmos, heaven is up there, the earth is down here, and what we want to be able to do is to ascend towards the heavens, and, or in Jesus' prayer, right, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth, to bring the rules of heaven down to earth. So if we look at heaven, right, God's going to say, look, heaven is the ultimate of reality. It's when God and man are living in peace together. So it's the ultimate, and you can start experiencing it right now, today. It's, it's within, it's at hand. The kingdom is at hand. Heaven is the ultimate reality. There's order. There's justice. There's reduced suffering in the world. There's shalom. There's peace. And when we build the kingdom, it's as if we're connecting, we're bringing together heaven and earth. So what's the first thing God's going to do? He brings Moses to what? A mountain. And the mountain is the connection. God comes down onto the mountain. Moses ascends. The ascending piece is the ascension of a spiritual journey. Now, do you have to go climb a mountain in order to ascend? No, it's metaphorical as well as, in this case, literal. But the point is, the mountain represents that ascension to bring heaven and earth together to where they become the point where they connect. This is what God's going to set them off to do so that these, these two spheres come together. And what we see, which is really cool, is God says, okay, we're going on a journey. And by the end of Exodus, Exodus 40, what do we find? We find God came down. They built a space for God. and now, now remember, it's open-ended, right? So it depends on their behavior, right? God gives them all the instructions for the tabernacle, and they build the golden calf. God says, see ya, I'm out of here. I'm done with you guys. This is terrible. Moses pleads with God. God says, okay, I'll give you another shot. They, they get their act together. So it's based, it's open-ended. It's based on their, they have personal responsibility in this. They build the tabernacle. What does God do? 
bam, connects heaven and earth. And so you get the presence of God dwelling with his people. But it's dependent. you t- got to have personal responsibility. That's what all those commandments are, right? We, it's not just about our rights. It's about our responsibility in society. So first, you get the tabernacle. And then you get so- uh, Solomon. His temple becomes the point of heaven and earth connecting. Then in Jesus' day, it's Herod's temple in Jerusalem that becomes the connecting point. And then, as we've talked about before, the coolest thing that happens at Acts chapter 2, the presence of God leaves the temple and lands on the people. They become. So now, where is, where is, is the connecting point between uh, heaven and earth? It's wherever a group of living stones gets together. It's amazing. This is such a radical shift. And, and it starts right here in Exodus. What's so cool, too, is God wants to partner with us, right? So we could say, okay, it's all God, it's all the Holy Spirit, but really, where's the church going to be in five years or ten years or whatever? Well, it depends. It depends on the church. It depends on what the church does, how the behavior of the church is. Are they, are they picking up their share of the responsibility? So it's an open-ended. We don't know. So, okay, this is what's so cool about God's name, is he's telling you where we're going. Well, we're... You kind of don't know because you can't see, but we're going on a journey, folks. I will be what I will be. Throughout time, I'll show up every single day. It'll look a little bit different every time, right? And this journey that we're heading towards is called the promised land. Now, where is that? Is it, does it have to be geographically the land of Cana? No, it can be anywhere that you bring heaven and earth together. This is the goal of the church, and it starts right here, and it's so cool. But really. This actually happened. I mean, you can, historians look back and see this, this actual shift in the way people think, and that's really amazing, uh, the historians that uh, study religious history. And then they, they say, yeah, it comes right out of the Bible. So when we can connect those two, what do we find? Its ultimate reality is, is now connecting outbreaks of order and justice and its personal responsibility, and it's, you, you're, you're, you're acting, you're picking up your cross and carrying it, to build the kingdom. That's where I think this whole name thing points us to, if we have eyes to see, that the, it's the exodus of the mind. It's a shift in the way that they think, uh, not putting God in a box, not trying to be formulaic with God. I will be what I will be means don't try to figure me out. Just walk the path, and I'll meet you on the path. But you got to walk the path. Okay, so we saw tonight yud heh vav heh This could mean, but the, the, the actual name of God, he causes to be. Well, what does he cause to be? Well, the, the open-ended future. Go create. Go create with God the open-ended future. And God will meet you in that. And so we participate in creation. And the coolest thing is, if you picture the, the sphere above heaven and the sphere below earth, what we want to do is transcend this world instead of, in the ancient world, you were, uh, what you tried to do was be part of the world. You tried to conform to that cycle. And what does Paul say? Do not be conformed by this world, but be transformed. And that's what he wants. Transform you in a way that causes you some spiritual ascension so that heaven and earth connect and you become that connection point. So our goal is to transcend the world, not conform to the world that we're in. But how does the world like it when you don't conform? 
not so much, right? They're not happy because that means if you don't conform to their ways, uh, it's subtle way of telling them that they're wrong. So nobody likes that. So we go back to this. Moses says to God, look, I got to give them a name. God says, I can't. Can't give you a name. I'll be what I will be. Now, maybe, I don't know what Moses was thinking. We'll ask him one day. I don't know what those first Israelites thought when they heard this, I will be, has sent me. I don't know what they thought. But I think there's something to that that's just remarkable what God ended up doing through his name in a way that radically changed the world. And I know many of you, have, since you've traveled around the world, you've been to cultures who, do, who are in, stuck in that uh, fatalistic cycle. You know, us Westerners, we're so used to planning ahead and everything's about how do we improve this and how do we move forward, and plan ahead for retirement and plan ahead for everything. And there are other cultures that don't do that at all. That frightens them. It actually raises their anxiety. And they don't function well. They, there's, uh, they, well, they just don't function well. And that's unfortunate because they, well, anyways. Okay. So name of God, how important is it that we can go in and explore this idea of, of the name and what all of the different facets that go along with this? And then what does it mean? And what we're going to do over the next three weeks, probably three weeks, is start talking about the plagues and what's happening with this battle between the Pharaoh. And you'll see the same question coming up. Because Pharaoh doesn't know God, and the Israelites don't really know God. And if you only have one plague, which God could have easily done, then they'll just call it a fluke. But you start building your plagues to show the nature of God is outside of time, and he's outside of geography, and suddenly Pharaoh becomes, whoa, what am I up against? And it's really... um, once you look, once you can see what's happening with Pharaoh, it's pretty cool inside the text. So, okay, that's uh, week six, the name of God. Let me stop this here for a second. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson, and then it helps you gain a deeper understanding of the biblical text. Fig Tree Ministries is an educational nonprofit, and we're 100% listener supported. If our lessons have been valuable to you in your study of the Bible, we ask that you support our work with a financial donation. Whether it's a one-time donation or you become a monthly supporter, we appreciate your generous gift. Donations are easy through our website, figtreeteaching.com, and you can become a regular supporter for as little as $5 per month. We've included a link to our donation page in the description section below. Online giving through our donation partner, DonorBox, is easy and secure. By setting up your DonorBox account, you'll be able to easily track your donations when it comes time to doing your taxes. We thank all of our donors for their generous gifts, and as you go into the world, may the words of number six be with you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you shalom. Shalom.